0: Welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me for another episode on the show, episode 223. Now, this is a podcast I've been wanting to do and wanted to do quickly uh, for the last three to four days. Now, uh, today I'm doing an interview with Blood Origins' Robbie Kroger. Now, he has a very, very great story um, about growing up in South Africa and then eventually moving on to Mississippi, United States. But that's not why I have him on the show. I mean, partly it is. I want to find out all about him. But the video that attracted me to Blood Origins and to Robbie Kroger was a video they made about a week ago was the tar coal that is planned for New Zealand. Now, a lot of people that listen to this show want to go to New Zealand. They want to hunt tar, which is a fantastic species to hunt. Uh, and the government, uh, in the darkness of night, has basically said they're going to tar uh, coal or tar in New Zealand which is a very, very sad thing for New Zealanders, a very, very sad day for hunting, a very sad day for conservation. So this is definitely something we need to fight against. Robbie made a video about this specific issue and brought it to a lot of people's attention and had tens of thousands of views. So it's, I think it's important to get behind this initiative. I think it's very important to donate some money to try and stop this tar coal in New Zealand and find a better way to manage tar in new zealand now i just want to play just a little bit from robbie's video before we actually get into the interview because uh, you'll find he's a very very passionate guy very passionate about what the way shooters look uh, to the general public the media and what we can do to care about the environment to care about the animals and and to show a better side of hunting so i just wanted to play a little bit of the video this is the video robbie made about the tar coal up uh, pending in new zealand
1: why would you even care? Why would you even care about an animal on the other side of the world, a tar, a mountain goat? Well, the reason being is that it's part of who we are as hunters to care about global wildlife and global wildlife conservation. So right now, on Tuesday of next week, there's going to be a decision made to cull all of the tar out of the national parks of New Zealand to a density of zero, eradication. So. You would expect as a hunter for us to come across as this rhetoric that says we want all the animals on the mountain. And that's just not true. We understand that management has to occur. There has to be culling from the government because the hunters themselves, recreation and commercial, cannot handle the population management just on their own. As hunters we want to sit in the middle we want to be able to hunt tar but we also understand that there is a management need to maintain a certain density tar management needs to go away from the species and it needs to be centered on the density i think most hunters would agree that that is necessary that is a middle ground the problem here is that everyone doesn't believe that there's a middle ground you either are on this side of the fence or you are on this side of the fence. You're going to hear a lot of things swirling around this tar issue. So we decided to tell you some of the truths a hundred years ago, they were gifted to New Zealand by the Duke of Bedford and 13 individual animals were released around Mount Cook 100 years ago. The population today is around, well, that's to be debated, 20,000 to 34,000. So we're not talking about a million animals on the mountain. We're talking about about 30,000 animals across the entire range of where the tar live there's more sheep in a high alpine private farm than there are tar so let's talk about impacts let's talk about ecological impacts because that's what you're going to hear we have to get rid of the tar because they're a pest species well no not really they're a game species they are a animal that we need to protect the argument is that they're grazing all the tussocks they're grazing all the alpine tussocks down well if you knew new zealand and you knew the geologic history of new zealand Those Alps, those high Alpine areas where these tar live are constantly
0: shifting. It's like a piece of... Anyway, guys, I just wanted to play a quick snippet of that so if you want to check out the whole video uh, please go on to the Blood Origins Facebook page or their Instagram channel and you'll be able to check it out there because I think it's really good it's only about a five minute video uh, but ultimately I think you should watch it and uh, you'll learn a lot and that's something that I really wanted to talk to Robbie about was about species density and conservation and about the words or labels we give animals and I find that very interesting about him talking about other things as well that I've seen uh, from some of his videos about, you know, game animal, feral animal, pest animal, and all these types of labels that we give animal and what animals in particular, if not all of them, what type of impact do they have on the environment? And, uh, you know, because as we know, some animals get a bad rap than others, you know, foxes and cats, for an example, in Australia. Uh, for an example. You know, every country has that species that seems to have that bad rap. And I want to talk about the differences between deer and tar and as opposed to feral animals, opposed to native animals like kangaroos that have massive impacts on our environment. So I hope you enjoy this show. This is going to be very interesting. Uh, I've been looking forward to doing this for a couple of days now. Robbie's obviously a very, very smart guy, uh, very, very uh, interesting to listen to when he talks about conservation. So I urge you guys to check him out. Um, Before we get onto the show, uh, if you could leave me a review on iTunes, that'd be absolutely fantastic. If you could listen to the show, share it with your friends and family. If you can't afford to support me on Patreon, that's fine. Uh, if you could just share the podcast on social media, that would be fantastic. Share it with your friends and family. Um, I think that would be the greatest gift you could give me. But if you do want to support me on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash AHB. I've had a fair people coming on just recently, so I want to thank all the people on Patreon. Again, guys, without you, I couldn't do what I do. So I really want to thank you guys mostly um, for supporting me. A lot of you guys have been supporting me for years. So I really, really appreciate that. And uh, you really don't know how much it means to me. And it brings you shows like this from not only people in Australia, but also people from around the world. And I've received several emails uh, over the last couple of months saying they really love hearing from people, not only from Australia, but what's happening overseas and the differences in all the shows that I do from hunting to politics to people from overseas to long-range shooting to hunting to um, reviews scopes and optics whatever it may be you guys are really enjoying it and that's what keeps me going and 10 years later I'm still the number one hunting shooting and fishing podcast in Australia and that's because of you guys not because of me it's you guys are the ones that listen to it and have built it up with me you know you guys are in this with me it's not me you guys are with me without you guys would be nothing So I want to thank you very, very much for that. So I think ultimately what we should do is bring Robbie on the show because I'm really keen and excited to find out uh, about his history, about his hunting, about living in Mississippi, about growing up in South Africa, his, his dad in hunting, learning from his dad about the tar coal in New Zealand. And I think it's going to be great. And I really, guys, I hope you enjoy the show. So without further ado, let's get into my interview with Blood Origins, Robbie Kroger. All right, Robbie Kroger, welcome to AHP. Thanks for joining me from Blood Origins. We're going to have a great chat today, mate. I've been looking forward to doing this uh, for the last couple of days. So thanks for coming on the show and thanks for accepting my offer. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, Jason, I'm always humbled, uh, one, to talk to people around the world about our small little project um, and also just to talk, you know, some common sense around, who we are as hunters so i
0: appreciate it no worries can you believe i mean in 2020 how we can connect with each other how uh, social media has connected so many hunters it's connected different people from different countries even though you know you might have origins from south africa i have origins of here from australia how we can actually connect with each other when we both have a love and passion for hunting um, and continuing this wonderful lifestyle. I mean, how good in 2020 we can get together and do something like this online. It just blows my mind year in and year out.
2: No, it's exceptional. And, and look, I've also got a little bit of origins from Australia, but I don't like to claim it. You know, it's the dark side of my family. And, uh, you know, those, 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 uh, those convicts, right? That's what my, my mom used to say. Um, but, no, you're absolutely right. It, it, the, for, and, and we're probably going to run down a rabbit hole right away. In in With the idea of social media and the digital age that we live in, there is a new tribe, there is this new community across the world that can interact with each other in real time and express their feelings and show their joy about this passion that hunting is, this lifestyle, as one of our Blood Origins episodes said, you know, Hunting is not a sport, it's an instinct. And that instinct is pervasive in our blood essentially across the world. And that's what we're trying to do through Blood Origins is, is show that instinct. But on the counter side, social media has been the downfall of hunting, in that there is now this mechanism, this medium in which we are proud to put our the things that we hunt, essentially the trophy shots. And unfortunately that has led to um you know, I wouldn't say the downfall of hunting, but it has has certainly created a, a bit of consternation in our hunting tribe across the world. And, and there's no doubt that social media has certainly pushed the envelope, car situation, African trophy hunting ban situation. It has exacerbated, let's say this, it has exacerbated those that are amongst us in the tribe that really aren't thinking about hunting in terms of a lifestyle for the future for our kids and grandkids, but then on the same hand has also helped us, those like you and me that are trying to make sure that hunting is around for our kids and our grandkids one day. Social media allows us to show that narrative, and that's exactly what we're trying to do with our, our project Blood Origins.
0: It's interesting because when I looked up Blood Origins, I thought, hmm, what does that mean? And when I saw your face, even though I, I guess – I didn't know about you guys before. I thought, no, I've seen this guy somewhere before. And uh, I actually know a South African fella uh, from Melbourne here just in Australia. And uh, I met him a couple of years ago, totally unrelated to hunting. But if I sent you a photo of this guy, and I probably will, um, you'll think you're looking at yourself. He looks exactly like you.
2: (laughs) No, it's – you know, it's a small project we started. It's funny. You know how you get those reminders on social media of Facebook and Instagram? This is what you posted three years ago. Well, we started the project three years ago. October of 2017 was the release of my episode. Essentially, we had to start somewhere. We had to start with my story, um, unfortunately. But it was the only story that I could tell without having to convince anybody else to tell their story. And so we started there. And she's three years later. It's 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 quite it's, it's incredibly humbling day in and day out, the messages that we receive, the people that we interact with. I'll actually just pause for a second and look up in my Instagram because I got a message last night that absolutely blew my brains out. And I get these kind of messages all the time, which again, just speaks to our community. Um, let me try and find it quickly. So here's a message that I received last night from a guy, I'm not going to tell you who his name is. And this is what it says. I really like to share my story with you guys. I'm not allowed to hunt anymore because of a suicide attempt. Basically can't own guns, but can buy a hunting license still. Makes me happy to know I'm still contributing though. Telling my story of what hunting meant to me and how I lost that privilege would help me greatly to get this burden off my chest and maybe help someone suffering to not make the same
0: mistake I did. Wow. very That's some heavy
2: stuff right there.
0: Absolutely. I guess you feel really, you know, humbled when you get, uh, you know, inboxes like that, and you read stuff like that, and uh, you read what it means to people. I remember growing up in in Sydney, and I guess my upbringing is probably a lot different than yours was too. But some people say, "Well, you know, why do you hunt?" And I said, "It's a good question. Obviously, I like getting the meat. I love the experience. For me, it's not just about the hunting; it's about." being out there with some of the best friends I've ever made in this industry, you know, via doing this show, um, via my hunting activities, obviously as well. And some of the people I've met in this industry are some of the best guys that I've ever met. But if you had, if I had to break it down to myself, I'm like, it's, I guess it's in my blood. I don't, I, I, I don't know how to say. It. I really don't know how to explain it to a lot of people. Where I just get this feeling that I want to be able to go out and hunt. I want that experience. I want to spend time with my friends in the bush. Um, but mm-hmm. trying to explain that is is very difficult sometimes.
2: And it, but though it's probably the most important question that you today as a hunter need to be able to answer.
0: Exactly, a hundred percent. I want to start a bit earlier, going back just a little bit. Just tell me a bit about yourself. I mean, a bit about your history, your history growing up hunting. You know, how old were you when you started hunting? Was it a family tradition? Type of animals you were hunting? Just give us a full rundown, Robbie.
2: Yeah, you you're going to be surprised that I actually never hunted. I. Um I come from a family steeped in hunting heritage. My grandfather moved to Mozambique in the 50s, lived the heyday of African hunting in the 60s and 70s. My father, who currently lives in Port Stephens, uh, uh, Australia, two and a half hours north of Sydney, um, grew up in the Africa of the heyday, right? The heyday. He, You name it, he did it. It was amazing. I never hunted. I, I just didn't get the opportunity. I lived in Johannesburg, eight and a half million people, didn't think about hunting, never talked about hunting. My family and my friends never hunted around me so you just didn't hunt until I came to America and I got embedded in the American hunting culture and I got introduced to it by a good old Mississippi redneck and he gave me my introduction to hunting completely Mississippi redneck style he gave me a lawn chair he stuck me under a cedar tree he gave me a gun he said if something walks by shoot it
0: (laughs) wow wow wow
2: and And that was my introduction to hunting, and you know that was it was something just like you. It was something there. there was something that resonated with me. There was something that and in the beginning, obviously as a nascent hunter it's the it's the rush, it's the thrill, it's the what am I going to see today, and all of that stuff still is there, but now I've evolved as a hunter, and now it's more about knowing that I've got meat for my family, knowing that there's these characteristics that build within me as a hunter. Even now as a 40-year-old man, I'm still learning through that endeavor, but I'm ensuring that I'm embodying those same characteristics now into my two young boys of, of eight and six, that they understand where their food comes from. They understand the responsibility of taking a life. They understand the conservation aspects of hunting and why we need population balance between predator and prey, between non-native feral animals and animals that are quote unquote native yeah these are the characteristics of perseverance of determination of patience those kinds of things come from uh, those things aren't just you know you you don't just get those from hunting right there's many 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 activities that you can do those kinds of things but the i would i would I would argue with someone that Understanding the responsibility of life and death, you don't get that characteristic anywhere else but hunting, because you understand that you are about to take the life of that animal, and you understand why you are taking the life of that animal, and you understand where food comes from. you understand food change, you understand trophic levels, you understand the circle of life that is Mother Nature itself. You're not set apart from Mother Nature. You're not an observer of Mother Nature. You are a participant in Mother Nature, which is, if you, if we had to be philosophical on this podcast for just one second, there is a, a deep, intrinsic problem with the human race today in that the majority of the human race is now completely disconnected from Mother Nature in that they have no idea about the cycle of life. They have no idea about the responsibility that taking a life means and what that means for the food that enters into your grocery store, into the food chain, that disconnect is probably where the majority of the problems lie in explaining the hunting instinct and the hunting lifestyle to someone who has no idea about what hunting actually means.
0: True. Guys, we're just going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back in just a few moments. The
1: National Shooting Council is taking legal actions against the governments of three states that closed their gun shops down during the coronavirus pandemic because what they did was an attack on every shooter and the right to go shooting. The NSC is also leading the fight to stop the reclassification of firearms and is preparing important voting advice for every shooter in every state, territory and federal election coming up. That's why the NSC is the leading political organisation for shooters in Australia. So support us work by becoming a member today at nationalshooting.org.au.
0: Robbie, I want to talk about, I mean, you talked about your, I guess, Australian contingent within the family. Um, how did they end up in Australia? Is there a a reason or is it they migrated and, um, are they hunters in Australia currently?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So my mom came from a big family in Sydney. Um, you know, they've traced and I, and I jokingly say we came from convicts, but, um, We did trace our (laughs) family lineage back to a great aunt, Marianne Marshall, who got convicted for housebreaking and got sent to Australia. So um, my mom and family, there's a big family in Australia. My father now lives in Australia. My brother lives in Sydney. Um, And so I have a very large family in Australia. I'm literally the only family member outside of our family, outside of Australia. And if you take the entire Landscape of my family, as it is today, there's probably 30 of us, maybe 40 of us. Up until two weeks ago, there was one hunter. Actually, no, I would say, I would say one hunter. my boys, I'm not going to count my boys right now. One hunter, and that's me. My dad doesn't hunt anymore because he just doesn't have opportunity to hunt in Australia. He, he's also got a couple of back conditions, so it's just not something he's chasing. And if you had asked me. Robert, do you think that there's somebody in, or or even flip the question on me, is there somebody in your family that you would have said would never become a hunter? I would have said, one of my cousins, and his name is Peter James, lives in Sydney, raised in Sydney, classic Sydneyite.
0: Okay <laughs> I was going to say, let's hope uh, Peter doesn't hear this podcast then.
2: <laughs> no, I hope, I hope Peter does get to hear this podcast because what I'm about to say, Peter uh, and his family have faced some some pretty, some pretty hard times, uh, pretty hardships, in that Peter's wife uh, had some serious cancer. She got through it though, and in that time frame, they obviously reevaluated all of their life choices specifically when it came to food. And Peter reached out to me and he said, hey, I think I'm interested in picking up at that time a bow and I want to start hunting. And it blew my mind. And the only reason he reached out to me, Jason, was because of the narrative that I've been pushing out of Blood Origins. Well, Peter right now is getting ready to go on his first hunt he's got a little piece of land up in the up in the hunter very small piece of property but he says he's got some goats on it and he plans to go harvest and take his first animal so he can bring organic antibiotic free hormone free free range meat back to his family and he can be a provider
0: wow what a great story. Well, now that I said that, once you said towards the end there, yeah, to finish the story, I was like, I bet he be- he's going to become a hunter. I bet he is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's exceptional, and I can't wait. We're, we're actually currently slated to come to Australia in December to have a family vacation. Who knows what, you know, corona and COVID is going to do to those, those travel plans. But if that happens, I plan to go with Peter up into the hunter for a day and see if we can we can hunt something together because it would be absolutely truly amazing to do. That.
0: Isn't it amazing when you see stories like that where you think, yeah, that person wouldn't possibly be a hunter. Um you know, I've been at trade shows for an example, you know, podcasting and I've got a stall at the trade show and I've I've seen friends and I thought, where do I know this guy from? And it's a guy I went to school with and he said, "Mate, I'm a hunter as well." And I was like Man, it's a small world when you haven't seen someone for, you know, probably just on 20, maybe 20 years and you see them at a trade show and they went to school with you and they're also a hunter as well. And you think, well, it's closer to home than you really think.
2: No, it's it's a small world, you know, especially, again, talking about the social media world that we live in today. You know, one, it's a small world, but then when you start seeing like-minded individuals posting the same kinds of narrative that you're interested in, the same kinds of photographs, the same kinds of feelings and messages, that world closes in very, very quickly. And, you know, I've got great friends now that I've never personally ever met. So we chat all the time, you know, we FaceTime all the time. And it's in France and New Zealand and Australia and South Africa and Argentina and Spain. It's just, it's incredible.
0: Mate, it absolutely is. So, I mean, when you were growing up in South Africa as well, you said you didn't do any hunting, but from what I see on the internet now, especially in 2020, there's a lot of guys on YouTube, a lot of people on Instagram, and seems to be a very, very rich hunting culture also in South Africa as well and all the African countries surrounding South Africa.
2: Yeah, you could say that. You know, it, it's the classic, again, it's it's the societal disconnect across the world you see it in australia you see it in america you see it in south africa it's the urban rural divide right the people that live in the big urban cities really don't have a perception around hunting don't know what what it is how it occurs how prevalent it is but if you go into the rural communities what you find is that hunting is prevalent right hunting is just a part of the culture of living out in the country just like you in you know in australia and South Africa and Argentina, it's all the same. There's just different perceptions around those individuals doing those activities. So, for instance, in Australia, the big perception that I believe Australians will fight in the next five to 10 years, there's two things I think that Australians will fight. One of them being very similar to the tar situation in New Zealand is that is, is is Australians in the country recognizing and the urban environment, but mainly the country recognizing that you have a resource and that it's not a pest or vermin species. Specifically your deer and your goats and your and your pigs, those kinds of animals, you know, yes, they're vermin, yes, they're non native, but they're also quite a valuable resource from a meat perspective. Um, not so much your 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 foxes and your your cats and whatnot. So that's a big that's number one in Australia. I think number two would be the whole ute uh, wife. We call them wife beaters here in in America, <laughs> but singlet wearing, you know, spotlight shooting individuals that just you know shoot for the pleasure of of killing as much as they possibly can and leaving it on the side of the road to rot.
0: You know you do bring a very fresh interesting perspective. How did you end up in in uh, Mississippi, USA? I've been hunting over there. I'd partaken as almost a decade ago now, but I've uh, been to America about 5 times. I've hunted uh, Texas, uh some dove hunting in Texas which was fantastic with a, a cousin of a friend and you know I got to you know shotgun doves and then we got to head back and you know prepare them you know put bacon around them bread them deep fry them you know pretty much what dreams are made of when you can eat some wild game in uh in, in Texas in Waco actually it was
2: that's awesome you yeah, know you got a, a good taste of southern hunting when it comes to dove season dove season is the is the first thing that we typically can hunt in America in the southeast every year so everyone is you know chomping at the bit for dove season um, I arrived in Mississippi in 2003 to do a PhD. I have a PhD in in biology, wetland ecology, um, sort of restoration science is my forte. It's what I've built my career on. It's what I do as a day job. Um, so that's what brought me to Mississippi from South Africa. And I did a PhD and I worked as a professor for six years in a wildlife fisheries department. And then uh, my career sort of morphed a little bit and I joined in, I jumped into the consulting world and and I, and I do restoration ecology essentially in the consulting world as a full-time job now.
0: Do you think you'll stay in the U.S. permanently until, you know, obviously not, your kids were probably born in the U.S., so is that where you'll call home for the rest of your life or is it just a, a temporary thing? Or, uh,
2: No, I think it'll be I think it's pretty permanent. Um, I love Mississippi. I'll even say it to a point where, I, you know, I may not leave Mississippi. I love Mississippi. <laughs> I love the outdoors, the, you know, the outdoors. And people laugh at me every time when I say Mississippi. You know, people are just have this perception around what Mississippi is. Just like
0: is. I did, just like um, I did.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we, I love Mississippi for, it's, it's you know, it's it's a slow, we live in a tiny little town, 11,000 people. It's It's very... The, the it's laid back it's slow it, it's it's well paced it's an outdoorsman's paradise both fishing and hunting if you get bored with that you just go to the state you know two states over and you've got something else to hunt you know something else to fish yeah. so no absolutely love it here. Yeah. love it here. Yeah.
0: how did you how, how does the South African culture with having I guess some roots to Australia as well how does that fit in with the you know small town Mississippi culture
2: you know it's, it's Quite funny. I get a lot of questions about you know what was the differences, and it's honestly there there wasn't much difference. And I'll say this: one of the the weapons that South Africans have in our arsenal, and if you've interacted with any South Africans, you know this is that we're extremely friendly buggers, and it's one of our you know it's almost one of the things that help us in situations. We can we can interact with a lot of people in various scenarios, and they feel very uh, connected to us. Well, Mississippians are like South Africans. So that whole idea of, of being friendly and being warm to someone, I, I couldn't use it anymore because everyone was friendly and warm to one another here in Mississippi. So um yeah, just you know, and obviously we have the same kind of history, right? Mississippi has the same history that South Africa did from a from a racial perspective and from a diversity perspective. So it was it was very There was no acclimatization, let me say that, for me arriving in Mississippi, except for the weather. The freaking humidity sucks ass here. But other than that...
0: It's pretty good. <laughs> I remember back in, I think I emailed you this too in two thousand and three or late December two thousand two slash early two thousand three. Now this was obviously just after what happened at nine eleven, and we went over to work in uh, Maine, USA, right up there in the far what that be northeastern state mm-hmm. of the US. And uh, you know, I live with one, two, three, four, five South Africans in a house working on a ski field in Maine. Um, Yeah, most interesting time I've actually ever had and uh, uh, such a mixture of people to come together from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and we just got put in a house oh, with, with all these people. And, you know, they were, by the end of it, they were trying to get me to, uh, you know, they kept – sometimes they were talking in Afrikaans and, you know, they were like, we need to teach you some Afrikaans. And I said, well, all right, go ahead. And, mate, to this day I still can't remember any of it. So, uh, yeah, it was certainly interesting to watch how they I- integrate with each other because um, I'm from Cape Town. They seem to have a very, very conservative nature. And uh, yeah, that was really, really a good time in my life. And I always look back on those memories very fondly, spending you know, three months of my life well, in uh, South Africa.
2: Well, I'm telling you what, I think that that, one, there's no doubt a bunch of South Africans, Australians and Kiwis together got up to no good. So you don't <laughs> have to lie to me there. <laughs> and number two, the, uh, you know, the mantra that is typical, typical of a South African is that we like to work hard and we like to play as, equally as hard.
0: I want to throw an interesting question at you. What do you think is our biggest threat to hunting moving forward over, say, the next five to 10 years?
2: That's a great question. And I will struggle. I've got two answers in my brain, and I think that they're equally valid. And I'll give you two answers, because I think there's one tied to our community, and then there's one tied to the non-hunting community. Let's remember this across the world. It's the non-hunting, and I'm saying non-hunting very specifically. It's the non-hunting majority that's keeping the hunting lifestyle alive. It's not the anti-hunting, and it's not the hunters. It's the non-hunting majority. So my first response to you is to that, which is if we do not change our narrative, about expressing who we are as hunters, that is a major threat to our lifestyle. Number two is internal to us. If we don't figure out how we all can get along as hunters and we stop the infighting and we stop the bickering, that could be equally as detrimental to our hunting lifestyle as what narrative we're putting out.
0: Very, very well said. This happened even to me just probably a couple of weeks ago Um, I've been doing some uh, pest control for a farmer this was a couple of years ago and it seems to be there seems to be a culture amongst hunters in my opinion that if you're not hunting deer or goats um, and it somehow happens to be out of the norm then people seem to like what's happening in uh, the African countries surrounding big game hunting and conservation there. Now, I support all types of hunting done in conservation to support communities um, and to take those animals out of circulation that may be causing problems. And to put, uh, from one of your videos as well, was fantastic, putting a a, a value uh, on that animal. So I posted up a photo with some, some birds, nat- uh, some native birds that I hunted here in Australia, only then to have thankfully it was only two people which were quickly banned but to you know, be called names to be um, told i was an a fucking idiot uh, a wanker um, things like this when people don't seem to understand that sometimes hunting can be different than pest control but also to understand that sometimes animals cause different types of threats and when a farmer says listen you know i need your help to conduct this activity which is fully 100 percent legal I think it's in the best interest of hunters to to support each other and to make sure that uh, it's not just about one particular species or one animal that uh, you like to hunt or that I like to hunt, but in fact, that we're all in this together. And I knew when I posted that photo, it might ruffle a few feathers because I wanted to see what type of people from the hunting community that would come out and maybe be upset with something like this. And uh, I quickly, f- quickly found them, I might add. Um, but I was disappointed that the fact that if we're going to hunt, if we're going to do pest control, sometimes these are different things and we need to respect and work with each other moving forward. Because if we don't, I think we're going to be fractured and this is not going to be good for hunting long-term now or in the next 10 years or in the next 20 to 30 years.
2: No, 100%. Let me ask you, let me push a little bit on you on that on that specific post so the people that commented some nasty grams you believe were hunters not non-hunters right
0: yeah 100 percent. i saw their photos i didn't follow them they didn't follow me i'm not sure how they got to see the photos but it was very very quick after i posted it so obviously they're watching me uh, i don't know but yeah
2: okay in that photograph and speaking to the first point that i mentioned and, and maybe I, I failed to put this element in there but Sometimes the narrative that we're pushing out, even though the narrative is, is and in my opinion, our narrative is firmly written for a non-hunting audience, it, gives, it also gives perspective to the hunting audience. So was the narrative, not to say that they were in the right at all, uh, but did the narrative explain the whole... Test scenario and what was being done, and why it was being undertaken
0: yeah that 's an interesting thing I wanted to mention i 've heard that in your videos too, which is fantastic as well i 'll actually send it to you and see what, see what you think about it after we we um, complete the show, but I spent time discussing you know the farming, pest control, the legalities of that um, you know, I tried to give as much perspective as possible that Sometimes different types of hunting and pest control is not what always sits within our normal range. Now, some of these animals, people mm-hmm. even have them as a pet in Australia. So the the native, you probably heard them, the native uh, cockatoo or the native galah, for an example. And people see these animals as being... Uh, you know, pets, and you really shouldn't be hunting them, you really shouldn't be uh, shooting them, you really shouldn't be doing any of that. But I tried to spend my time to specifically discuss the situation surrounding that and what led me to uh, doing that and what the legalities are and, and how you need to help people and how we need to help each other. And, you know, I just found it interesting that people, fair enough, may not like it, may think it's not their cup of tea, so to speak. But to then, you know, result into some very, very serious um, r- rude words you might say, um, and not just one, sometimes several in several stories on Instagram, I thought, what do you get out of doing that to someone? What do you get after I've specifically explained? the situation and how we come and how we're helping and how this helps farming, how this helps people, how this helps the farmers you're working for. So it's an, uh, it's an interesting uh, discussion where people seem to think these days, well, you know, if you've got your diehard deer hunters that, you know, it's all about deer hunting or it's all about uh, feral animal control, um, you know, or people saying we need to make every animal feral, you know, because any introduced species is feral. Um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting about you know environment, conservation, ecology, uh, and all those types of things.
2: Hundred percent. No, I look forward to seeing it.
0: So I want to talk about too. I guess in talking about conservation, what does that mean to you? What does that word conservation mean to you?
2: Um, As <laughs> you could probably guess, it has multiple meanings to me. Uh, conservation means, I guess, in its broadest sense. The perpetuation of a a species or a population. Um, to me, that's the broadest definition that you can have of conservation. Uh, within that definition, you have conservation of habitat. You have conservation of ecosystem services. There's all sorts of things that are tied in with that with that action. Right? Conservation is supposed to be an action. Conservation is supposed to be a doing thing. A The doing thing, the action is the perpetuate, is the results in that perpetuation of that species, the perpetuation of that habitat. And you do it, the reason why you want it to perpetuate, you know, people do it for several reasons. I do it so that my kids and my grandkids one day are going to be able to do the things that I can do today. Other people do it just because, well, that's what it's supposed to look like, right? Right. You will get a lot of arguments out of the the anti-hunting green uh, <laughs> yeah. groups that say yeah. we're doing conservation specifically because that's what it used to look like, and we want it to be like that forever. I, I get that. I, I can see that. My only problem with that is that that environment, that thing that they're after, happened. In the absence of a significant human population on this planet, because of that fact, because you have a significant human population on the planet, that ideal is no longer feasible. That ideal is no no longer logistically possible. And so you have to come to a more, dare I say, modern day conservation outlook.
0: Yeah, 100%. Guys, we're just going to go to another quick break. We'll be back with Robbie Kroger from Blood Origins, and we're going to talk about the tar eradication potential that may be coming up in New Zealand. We'll be right back. Renowned for their strength, reliability, and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision from the MK trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK 70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. Robbie, I want to talk about, which is how I found you, but I remember when I was watching it, I thought, I know this guy from somewhere, but anyway, that's a side issue. I want to talk about the tar eradication video you made from New Zealand, which is what I saw. And I thought, wow, this blew my mind. This is great. Not great what's happening, obviously, but great that you are bringing it to light. So tell us a bit about what you know about what's happening with tar uh, eradication in New Zealand. Because I know a lot of people that were, if not planning this year until COVID hit, were heading over to New Zealand to try and uh, get their first tar. And unfortunately, it's been put, no doubt being put behind by this, but also by COVID as well.
2: So remind me again, how long is this podcast? Four hours, right?
0: Um. Yeah. It should be, mate. We can go as long as we need to, man. We're about halfway through, so I'm looking (laughs) forward to, mate. The more information we can drop on listeners, the better we're going to be.
2: Okay. So let me give you the cliff notes version. Um, 2018, and I'll refer to them as DOC, the Department of Conservation. DOC announced very similar plans to enact a coal for New Zealand tar that had a number associated with the cull that just did not follow um, any science or any monitoring that essentially said that they were wanting to cull tar to a number that potentially would have eradicated tar back in 2018. We had a huge response from the hunting community around the world. They pulled back on those plans. In those plans, they, they planned to cull billies. They took bullies off the table. They said we're going to take 10,000 tar outs, and that happened in 2019. Well, we're we're experiencing the same situation again, and but it's more vociferous this time in that the Department of Conservation DOC has received a significant budget in the last six months of essentially the the party's tenure uh, in New Zealand. The elections are happening in September, and they have essentially tripled the helicopter time for culling for the 2020 to 2021 TAR management plan. And in that operational plan, they list the various management units within the feral range of TAR. There's also a number of helicopter hours assigned to the range. And within those six management units within the feral range, they have the national parks, which is a favorite hunting ground of recreational hunters, as well as outfitters uh, that bring a significant amount of economy to the country of New Zealand through hunting, uh, a massive GDP actually to the tune of about $100 million on an annual basis. And as a caveat, not everyone's coming in for hunting to hunt tar, but it is a very prominent animal that is is an iconic species around the world that people specifically come to New Zealand to hunt. And uh, Doc, so that management plan came into effect on July 1. That's their cycle, July 1 to June 30th. Well, last Wednesday, which was about, let's just uh, say, you know, June the 24th, June the 25th, the draft operational plan was placed on the New Zealand uh, liaison group, which is made up of a number of stakeholder groups, including the Hunting Association, that promised after the 2018 debacle with DOC to come to the table to review the 1993 tar management plan and to put in place a new way to manage tar. And this is the most critical point here, in that hunters recognize the hunting fraternity, the hunting associations, the people of New Zealand that love to hunt. Know that there has to be a middle ground. The hunting associations were not saying get rid of culling. What the hunting associations were saying was there has to be a middle ground that takes into, the, into account the interests of recreational hunters, takes into, into, into account the e- economics and job generation that is hunting in New Zealand, but also takes into account the fact that you have a species on a mountain in New Zealand that has some impact on the biodiversity of the flora, and it has to be managed. And as hunters, we can't manage them to the point where uh, is an acceptable limit. So culling is needed. Well, what, the, what Doc did was they dropped this new plan on everybody with six days to spare, didn't give anybody a voice, was went completely against the grain of what they said that they were going to do. And then everyone, obviously a big chorus came out. You saw our video come out. Our video came out on Sunday. And then at 11.45 p.m. on June the 30th, with 15 minutes to spare, the management plan was dropped on everyone, which included the full eradication of tar to a density of zero, including all billies on National Park. And that's where everybody just said, okay, we're done, and we're moving forward with our plans, and our plans being the hunting fraternity. And so what has happened is an injunction has been placed in the High Court That injunction hearing is going to happen July 8th, so this coming week, this coming week Wednesday, and there's two decisions that could come out of that court. The first decision is that the injunction is in place to stop culling, so all helicopter pilots going into the air to cull tar will stop. They are culling, as a side note, they are culling right now. The management plan is in effect,
0: and they are
2: out there culling right now. This other decision is that the High Court the injunction is denied and culling continues. Well, then obviously the Tar Foundation as well as the New Zealand Deer Stalkers Association, whoever else, is going to do the same thing. Forest and Bird is did so. Forest and Bird uh, has essentially sued the Department of Conservation. That may not be legally the right terminology, but they essentially have sued DOC to say you not you are not uh, lawful and legal in what you are doing. And so we're stringy because your actions are not appropriate. I think that's what's going to happen from the Tall Foundation and New Zealand Deer Hunting Association if the injunction does not hold. And so that's essentially where we're at. We're almost like in a waiting game until July 8th in that injunction hearing. And then we'll, we'll go from there.
0: I guess a lot of hunters and organisations, I mean, a lot of people feel helpless that, again, this government... Uh, again has decided to target hunters shooters outdoorsmen that want to get into the outdoors and you know hunt animals for meat um, for the culture so what can what what can people do I noticed um, I watched one of your videos as well or you I think it might have been on Facebook I can't remember but you you made a donation as well so if people want to help out Do you have the details of where people can go to uh, help out the cause? Because this is obviously not just an attack on the people of New Zealand and the hunters of New Zealand. This should have worldwide ramifications against uh, hunting in general. And if governments think they can get away with this type of activities, um, they will continue to get more and more brazen as the years roll on.
2: No, you're absolutely right. There is precedence that is about to be set here. And it's not just happening in New Zealand. We're fighting it in California right now. With an African uh, taxidermy ban. We are watching it very carefully in the UK, where the UK is essentially going to ban all import and export of all trophies across the world going into the UK, which is, when you just think about that for a second, it's absolutely mind boggling. Um, But it's precedent setting. And so, what can we do? What can people do? The best thing somebody can do right now is donate to the TAR Foundation because. The legal battle is going to occur. The legal battle is going to be long. It's going to be arduous. And we have to hire the best lawyers that we possibly can. And that costs a lot of money because we're going up against a machine of the sort of animal rights anti-hunting establishment that has incredible amount of economic resources.
0: Yeah. I'm just trying to look while we're actually talking. I'm just jumped on the net here trying to find the uh, NZ Tar Foundation. Uh, I think it's nztf.org.nz, guys. So I think that's where you go. Just quickly while I'm talking to Robbie as well. So if you want to donate, I mean, I think you can jump on that website there. Is that right, Robbie? Go into their website, the New Zealand Tar Foundation?
2: Actually, it's a lot simpler than that. Just type in New Zealand Tile Foundation and go to their Facebook link. And in the Facebook link, there'll be a give a little link, a give a little uh, GoFundMe link. And that's exactly where you go. Just click there and just put in your credit card details. It'll take you two minutes.
0: Yeah, exactly, guys. I just noticed that did come up. If you type in uh, NZ Tar Foundation, the Facebook one is the first one that actually comes up, guys. So get on there, check it out. I'm going to make a donation after I finish uh, this show. So, And I'll be posting it on... on Instagram, just for people to get involved. Again, it's not about us here in Australia or Robbie in America or South Africa. This is worldwide and we need to get involved. And, you know, like I keep saying with all things in regards to hunting, shooting, and firearms, the only way forward is some type of legal action to put stops to the government continuing to do these types of things to uh, us shooters and hunters across the world. So, uh, Robbie, I want to talk about too. Um, where do we go from here in regards to the tar? If, they, if we do lose that, are we in for some serious trouble with tar? Will, will they be able to eradicate all tar out of New Zealand? So
2: the cull is not a complete eradication of all tar. The, the cull is a complete eradication of all tar in the national parks.
0: Okay, got you. But yep.
2: the, population of, the population of tar in the national parks is a significant portion of that population. And, and think of it as almost the, the source population or tar as they move out right as they emigrate out of that source population into outer areas and uh i've heard uh willie Dooley, who's part of the uh, new zealand game animal council great individual speak about this and that what you're essentially doing is you're wiping out a significant amount of the breeding population like the the big billies that have been in there 10 12 14 years you get essentially that is all going to get wiped out and so The recovery of the population of tar, if they decided, if this moved forward and they did go to zero density, there will still be remaining tar in New Zealand. How long it will take for them to recover to the densities that they are, um, that are huntable, that are uh, economically viable for the hunting industry that is a very significant economic resource for, for the country of New Zealand is debatable. and uh, But it would be a significant amount of time in which more than likely outfitters that have been, you know, if they survived COVID, would probably be in dire straits now even more because there literally would be no tar. For someone like me to come into New Zealand for you know a, four, a three day hunt or five day hunt for me to find a bull tar to take as, as, a, as a
0: trophy, essentially. This is why I always tell people, Robbie, um, they've got an election coming up in September. Make your vote count in September, guys. You know, if you're a New Zealander and you're listening to this show, make your vote count. Make your money do the talking. Jump on. Donate. And come September, vote for parties that are you know, pro-hunting. Find out who's in your local area. Find out which parties support hunting, which ones don't support the tar or massive tar coals in New Zealand, and put your money and your vote where, where it's going to work for you and uh, continue this hunting tradition. What do you think they can do, Robbie?
2: Well, I think there's a narrative that needs to be told, and, and, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. A little bit here, but I'll I'll, I'll learn something from a very uh, good New Zealand friend of mine. I've never met him personally, um, but he he's a respected individual in the New Zealand hunting fraternity, and, and his name's Carn Adam. And what he said was, "Hunting hunters, right now, we 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 cannot be dicks, and you can't be all about." You know, this is our right, and how dare they take our right away from us and whatnot. The narrative that we should be talking about is, one, a middle ground narrative, which is we understand the impact of tar on the landscape. We need management. We want management. We just want to seat at the table to understand what this middle ground is, number one. Number two, there is a need for science. There is a need for more monitoring. There is a need for an updated management plan. They're working off a 1993 TAR management plan. This thing's nearly 30 years old. There are better techniques of monitoring, of uh, understanding source sink movements, population dynamics. There are some phenomenal thermal flare technologies to get very good, accurate counts of animals in certain basins and catch basins there is you know adaptive management in the scientific community is a a huge tool that is at our re- is, is, is at our fingertips to use that as hunters i completely think that the majority of hunters want a balanced ecosystem in which you can go in every year understand what the population dynamics are doing in a certain basin, in a certain management unit, and adjust your management tools for that unit on an annual basis based on the population dynamics of the basin. It's almost what happens in America, the North American wildlife management model. You get an accurate count in a system. You know how many tar are taken out of that system. Let's use tar as an example. You know how many tars taken out of that system. You know how many tar were taken out of a certain area, and every year the culling and the hunting get married against one another to manage a balanced population. And included in that assessment is an assessment of the fauna, is the is the establishment of long term vegetation plots to make sure that your high alpine tussock um, vegetation community is is supporting the native biodiversity that we both want. Both sides want that. It's not that hunters don't want it, but that's the narrative that I don't think hunters are talking about.
0: Now, what does the government said? Just for, I'm just thinking about it right now. They say, well, where's the middle ground if they cull a certain amount? But then the government says, well, they have a detrimental effect on... You know the Tussock, I think it was you were talking about in your video. How do we combat when they come back and said, "Well, that is bad. We need to get rid of all of them."
2: There's a number of things that you say when when it comes to that comeback. Number one, when you when you look at certain vegetation analyses and certain vegetation methodologies for assessing impacts of grazes on flora, you have to be able to step back and look at it at a regional scale. You can't look at it at a sub catchment subunit scale because You know, one of the most, the things that I mentioned, one of the things I mentioned in my video is that the New Zealand landscape is a very dynamic, geologically active landscape. That system is moving, there's earthquakes, there's rock slides, there's everything happening in that landscape all the time. So the impact of a tar, and let's assume that there's a a population of 30,000 tar on the mountain that tar's impact in certain areas is absolutely detrimental to the flora. There's no doubt. And hunters will tell you that. They've seen it. They've seen the the meadows mowed down because of tar. But there's other areas that there was a meadow one year and there's no meadow the next year because you had a rock slide. And so you have to balance the, the, the whole system as one. You can't just isolate tar. You've also got to remember that you know, the other comeback that I would come back with is you've got farming practices, agricultural practices, you've got sheep. How many heads of sheep do you have in a high alpine grazing on the same stuff that tar do?
0: Yeah, great question. Lots. Great question. Lots,
2: lots. But then again, here's the other thing that I would also highly recommend anyone does is just go on Google Earth and look at New Zealand and scroll in. And the biggest fingerprint that you see on that landscape is humans. Humans have altered the landscape. So it's inherent on us to manage it. And, you know, the tar, and, you know, I know one of the questions we're going to get to is, you know, is tar a feral, non-native, invasive species or is it a game species? And especially in a place like New Zealand, that's a very, very important question because let's rewind the clock 100 years ago, 200 years ago. New Zealand, One, number one, you've got to remember, New Zealand is a very, very, very young, um, young landscape, okay? Not just young from a human settlement perspective, but it's fairly young geologically. Number two, New Zealand didn't have a single mammal on it, period. No humans, no cattle, no sheep. No nothing. But the landscape has been changed. The landscape has been changed tremendously, especially in the last 100 years. And you've got a system, very much like Australia, that is uh, flourishing with non-native species. And I specifically just call them non-native. I'm not going to call them invasive because you have certain native species that, without any population checks and without any population management, become nuisance invasive species as well it happens in america it happens in australia it happens in new zealand so the way that i um and i know you haven't asked me this question but i'll just go ahead and answer it how do you how do you classify the difference between a game animal and a feral animal and to me it comes down to utility a yeah. game animal in my mind, is an animal that can be used. And when, it says, when I say used, I mean it can serve as a resource for protein, for meat, for people. And number two, it serves as an economic resource for the GDP of a, a town, a community, a region, a country. So when you look at an animal, a tar, in that, with that definition in place, is a tar a game species or a feral animal? In my mind, it's a game species.
0: Yeah, it's let's in-
2: take the same scenario.
0: Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and that was a good question. We were talking about it a bit earlier, but, yeah, managing those labels and the utility you talk, I find that interesting because I'm only going from the Australian experience that, you know, we have uh, feral animals which they've labelled such as, you know, like I said before, foxes, cats, Uh, Wild pigs, uh, for an example, just just to name a few. Then we've got game species, obviously deer. um, And then they also refer to some as, you know, pest animals as well, which some game species can technically be pest animals for farmers, such as deer when they're attacking crops and stuff like that. But how do we manage the labelling, even things like native animals. I mean, native animals such uh, as kangaroos, for an example, cause massive amounts of damage to our environment. Um, Things coming on roads, people hitting them, causing accidents, for an example. So I guess my biggest question, I've always struggled with this whole labelling of, of animals and I know we may not utilize the fox as in nobody wants to eat a fox, it probably doesn't taste very good. Um, how do we, how do we, should we be getting away from labeling of animals? It's just there's so many labels yet I would say from a perspective of all animals that every animal and including humans if we want to classify ourselves as an animal have detrimental impacts in some way on the environment yet native animals seem to get a, a pass uh, as opposed to feral animals, as even as opposed to game species such as deer, or uh, they even classify goats in Australia as feral animals, and the government says, well, get rid of as many basically as you can.
2: Yeah, I, you know, regardless of the label, every, and I'll start it this way, regardless of the label, every habitat, every ecosystem in the world has had some sort of anthropogenic influence on it. Humans have influenced every ecosystem and every habitat in this world. And because of that fact, we have a responsibility to manage that system such that the system produces what best uh, services that that system can provide. Certain systems like the rainforest, that is, you know, biodiversity, carbon sequestration, the whole climate cycle. Other systems produce wildlife. Other systems provide water quality benefits, like wetlands, like the you know the kidneys of the landscape. Other systems provide a whole suite of of, of other services. So you have to, as a human species, as us, as the humans, have to manage those systems accordingly. And the animals that live within them have to be managed because they have themselves been influenced, whether themselves as a population or the prey that they rely on has been manipulated or the predators that prey on that wildlife species has been manipulated because there has been some manipulation. There is going to be imbalance. And as humans, we you know, and here's where the, the biggest contradiction and the typical, the biggest argument is leveled against us from an anti hunting community is we as hunters believe that we need to manage. And I strongly know based on ecological principles that we need to manage. The anti hunting establishment will say, no, humans should not manage. You need to stay out of it. Mother nature will take care of itself. That is true. Mother nature will take care of itself. But only after she enacts some extremely violent, painful, and cruel uh deaths on the system. You only have to look at the at the newspapers in the last week. I don't know, did you see the four hundred elephants that died in Botswana?
0: Yeah, I did. Yep. Yep.
2: Yep. More than likely, my hypothesis for that four hundred elephants dying, and I'm not this isn't confirmed anywhere. This is just Robbie Kroger's opinion, hypothesis that could be completely wrong. But my gut is saying that it's probably some sort of anthrax that killed those elephants. Some sort of the the typical mother nature, um, we're out of balance, I'm going to correct you, and I'm going to use this to correct you.
0: Yeah. Which is not
2: what we want to see.
0: Yeah. I was going to say to you, just let's say Robbie Krogh is in charge of TAR or the management of TAR in New Zealand. So this is a bit of a curveball just off the, off the cuff. In the short, the intermediate, and the long-term, what do you think the best way forward is for TAR and to manage TAR in New Zealand?
2: Uh, Short-term is a middle ground. Short-term is reduce the helicopter hours in the national park to um, what it used to be. So right now, it's a tripling of the helicopter hours. So you go back to the normal helicopter hours, 40 hours, no billies. But the middle ground there, because then doc would say, well, that's just what we used to do. That's that's, that's only helping hunters, That's not helping you. Well, the middle ground would be, there would be a convening of the best minds in Australia to say, okay, where do you, how do you arrange that management spatially on the landscape to control management? In the medium term, to put together, they've already got a liaison group that's made up of the interested stakeholders across New Zealand. And everyone drafts a brand new 2021 tile management plan that has integrated within it a active management strategy for all of the units that tile occur in. Such that there's going to be breakpoints in in that management system that if the the data, the monitoring of certain alpine flora indicates that there is an overpopulation and a detriment to the system, then you have an adaptive management uh, strategy that kicks in that ups the cull numbers or ups the recreational hunters going into that area to help manage that system. To me, that becomes then the long-term strategy. In that you've just got a very coordinated, collaborative, scientifically based adaptive management strategy for the management of this resource. That's not only important to New Zealanders, recreationally and commercially, but one of the things that we hit on the video, and we're going to do another video this Sunday that is going to hit this this point home even harder, is that there is a responsibility on New Zealand. Globally, because this is a species that is is almost extant in its native range. And I would say in the next five to 10 years, there will not be any Himalayan tar left in the Himalayas of Nepal and, um, you know, in Pakistan and stuff. And so there is a responsibility one day to, you know, and, and geez, how cool would it be if the New Zealand people could gift 200 tar back to Nepal? because they've taken care of the top population.
0: Yeah, it's certainly very interesting, isn't it? And uh, on that video too, you were talking about density of the herd instead of species. Can you go into just a little bit about that as well, if you haven't already?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, it's pretty much to the point that I've made, is that people yeah. are just focusing on the fact that it's this non-native animal, right? and that's why it needs to go. Well, no, it, it, it's because of density. It's because of the numbers of animals on the mountain. And in certain areas, you have a very low density. And in certain areas, you have a very high density. And you have to manage to that density. And the way that you manage that density is understanding the impacts of that density on the landscape, which comes from good science. It comes from good monitoring. And unfortunately, you know, just like any state government over the years, DOC has had budget shortfalls. You know, they've had, they don't have the, they didn't have the resources in the last couple of years to do the things that they would have wanted. You know, I can guarantee you that the scientists within and biologists within DOC would have loved to have a scientifically rigorous adaptive management strategy for the management of tar. But that costs money. That's, that's You're not talking about something that's cheap.
0: Yeah, it always seems to, every time we come back to something, it always seems to, especially for governments, always seems to be, you know, about the money, doesn't it? Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, interesting topic. I wanted to bring up too about obviously, you know, we watch the, you know, the documentary channels, and nature is quite violent, isn't it? When uh, animals are, you know, pitting themselves against one another to survive. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of people say, well, are we just an animal species too? And if so, why are we held up to a higher standard? Um, You know, I guess in the environment and food chain. Um, compared to animals, you know, animals like yeah, kill. Are we just an animal, um, and why are we held up to such a higher standard? <laughs> Another curveball. This is a. This is. I've thrown you a slow ball this time, not a curveball.
2: <laughs> no, that's not a slow ball, my friend. That's the freaking fast ball that screams <laughs> in right there. Um, that well. To The simple answer, and I think the only only way I can answer this is very simply, is that humans are inherently different than animals. Mm -hmm. We feel, we have compassion, we have a brain that can compute, we have relationships, we have the ability to communicate, we have the ability to think, we have the ability to process, we have the ability to analyze, and we have the ability to put that all together together. that's what sets us apart from all other animals. That's what allowed us to be who we are today. And so, there is an yeah, there's an inherent responsibility for us to look after this thing that we have been called to steward by our creator. And because of that, you know, there's there isn't there's a much greater responsibility for us to do the right things in the right manner, and and be. And be thoughtful in, in what we do and again we're getting a little philosophical here but you know it, it comes down to again we have we have a great divide in our society today across the world urban rural uh, conservative uh, liberal or Democrat if you want to call it here in the states we have very very differing viewpoints on things and what's lacking today in society is this this ideal of the middle ground of let 's let 's find this common purpose that we both that we both want we both for instance in tar we both want a balanced ecosystem
0: and you brought up a, a very good one too just uh, in one of the videos as well. I want to talk about putting value on an animal to aid in conservation now i don 't do a lot of research and stuff on what happens in the African countries, but now, if I'm correct, there was an article just probably about three to six months ago that we did. If it was Botswana, if I'm correct, you might be able to correct me on that, but um, they had banned uh, hunting uh, as in, you know, trophy hunting or whatever you want to call it or conservation hunting and then realised that the animals were in decline. So then now they're either trying to or if not have done, opened up again conservation hunting to people because they realised putting a value on the animal ultimately aids in uh, conservation and increases the numbers of those animals uh, within those regions.
2: Yeah, uh, you got a couple of things right there and you got a couple of things wrong. So let me uh, try and see if I can (laughs) sort of put put everything in, in perspective. So when it comes to Africa, the majority of Africa is a very rural subsistence type lifestyle. And those individuals interact with wildlife day in and day out. In Botswana, so I'll keep Botswana out of it for a second. When you do not have a value on wildlife in an area, i.e. there is no, the only value that someone sees of that wildlife is potentially meat for them to eat, number one. Number two, meat for them to sell, which then gets into the whole bush meat, illegal trading, poaching-type scenario, and thirdly, which is where the big mega-fauna, the mega char- charismatic fauna come in, the elephants and the lions and the hippos and stuff like that come in, is when there's human-wildlife conflict on against agriculture, which is what they're putting the value in, in the, on the landscape, right? So that's what they're trying to make an eager living out of, is their cattle and their maize crops and their sorghum crops and whatnot. And so, if there's no value to the elephant and there's no value to the lion, there's no, ele- there's no value to the elephant raiding the crops and there's no value to the lion eating the cattle, it makes complete sense. You take the elephant out and you take the lion out. We would do it. So there's no questioning why they are doing it. Hunting, what hunting does is hunting puts a value on those animals that are causing the conflict. So what now the villagers? actually have is they've got a greater um tolerance for those animals. Because now they say, okay, I can I can afford that animal. That lion could take out one or two of my cattle because I know that I'm actually going to receive money from the hunting outfit for that lion that I'm gonna be able to buy fifteen cattle. So I'm gonna keep that lion around because it pays to stay. Let me switch to the Botswana example now. So Botswana just like Zimbabwe, have has actually got a massively increasing elephant population. They've got their population, the elephant population is way over carrying capacity, which is a fancy scientific term for how many animals can actually an ecosystem can handle. Their elephant numbers are way over carrying capacity. That's one of the reasons why they believe the 400 elephants just died on the spot, essentially a week ago. Um, There's just it's, and that's going to start happening more and more. Uh, if, you, if you ask a couple of the big scientists. And so in Botswana, they removed the ability for people to hunt elephants. It was a, a moratorium that put in place by the previous government. And so what what happened then? Human-wildlife conflict in Botswana with elephants has always been there. With increasing populations, that human-wildlife conflict is increasing. Without hunting the amount of elephants that were probably getting taken out without anyone knowing was probably increasing because those elephants had no value any longer. Bringing trophy hunting back of elephants in Botswana and in Zimbabwe, where you have high populations of elephants, let me be clear, is not a population control measure because the quota of elephants to the regional population of elephants in Botswana is like 0.5. Five percent of the population. It is not a population control mechanism. It is an economic revenue generating mechanism for the local people of Botswana to tolerate human wildlife conflict a
0: little more. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting actually. Is there any, I mean, uh, in regards to managing and conservation of those animals in South Africa? Do you think they're, they're doing it right? Is there things where they can do it better? Or do you think, in, in general, the system is a pretty good system over there?
2: Ever since the, the culling of elephants was removed as a management tool, elephant populations are increasing. There is going to be, in the next 10 to 15 years, the, that 400 elephant popul- situation we saw in Botswana, something like that's going to happen on a much, much larger scale. Because, again, when it comes to managing animals, whether it's an elephant or a possum, there's only two things you can do. You can you can kill them or you can move them. And I hate to be so crass about it, but those are the two things you can do to manage wildlife. The idea that you can use contraception to manage wildlife <laughs> has been debunked over and over and over again.
0: They're, they're trying that here too in... Um... Australia, Robbie, you know, with kangaroos, oh, we can just, you know, sterilise them and, you know, it's like, really? Really, we're going to go to... I mean, can you just imagine the cost to do such a measure? I mean, just the cost. Forget the rest of the issues, just the cost involved. But according to the greenies and the lefties, well, you know, cost doesn't come into it. You know, money grows on trees, as we know. So don't worry about that. You know, we'll just do whatever we need to. I mean, we're talking about now about sterilizing animals. I mean, you know, wow, how far we've come in, you know, 250, 260 years since, you know, Australia or however long was founded to come to this sort of thing where people are saying we're going to sterilize animals. I mean, Wow.
2: No doubt, my friend. No doubt.
0: Mm. I want to talk about something interesting too about just a couple of questions before we, uh, finish off but what I might do actually first we'll just go another quick break Robbie uh, then what we'll do is we'll come back got a couple of more questions uh, and then we'll finish off. The new Zeiss Conquest V4
1: line of high performance rifle scopes combines tried and true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design providing high definition glass enhanced with T-star and low to tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye light transmission this means excellent low light performance and resolution across the entire magnificent range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit osaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible.
0: Robbie, I want to talk about, uh, also too, speaking about, yeah, since our yeah, countries were founded, the one I'm in now and the one you're in now, you know, we seem to have lost, haven't we, that connection uh, to not us in particular, but just the general public in in hunting and where our meat comes from in what I would say to be really especially probably in the last twenty years in a really relatively short time
2: yeah no it's uh you know it's just a part of our society our society has is evolving extremely quickly you just look at what we used to have as kids to what our kids have today as kids um, you know technology and digital and virtual reality and all those things that just disconnect you more and more and more from what mother nature is, is, is where society has trended. Some, you know, we're looking for, everything's got to be a little bit more convenient, a little bit more easier on life, you know, the hardships of life are, are being removed left, right and center. Um, yeah, it's it's almost like the antithesis of what mother nature does, right? And mother nature tests you, mother nature wants you to go through trials and tribulations in society, we're moving away from it to being as as simple and as easy and as productive as we possibly can be.
0: Yeah. And just thinking about over the things that have happened over the last, say, 20 years, I mean, you know, I see what's happening online. I see the, the growing separation of people, the polarization of, you know, politics and different views. Where do you think we are in the grand scheme of hunting? Do you think we're losing, you know, I guess, that cultural war of, of, of our hunting?
2: Um, I think that I am more of an optimist than a pessimist. I think that there is a tide that is changing. I think that there is a new narrative that's being pushed by hunters. I think the idea of the locavore movement and the millennials that are looking for very clean, organic, neat, locally sourced is a plus for hunting that is going to be the people who are interested in hunting and they're not interested in hunting from a killing perspective. They're interested in, in hunting and understanding exactly where their food comes from because they want to know who touched it. They want to know how healthy it is because it's all about being healthy themselves and putting good food into their bodies. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be on the side of the optimist here and that there's, there's a lot of good things happening in our hunting community. I think that our industry has painted us into a corner unfortunately over the last 20 years because hunting has been essentially a you know a bullet type sport that you know that's what that's what it's been and that's what sells guns and that's what sells you know if you can kill the biggest animal with this with this gun or this bullet that's what the industry has done because that's business right and that's that's essentially what hunting has has resembled and the perception that everyone has around the world about it but today i think that that is changing i think everyone is seeing what it is they, they're putting all the relevant elements of 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 the adventure of the people of the traditions of the relationships that's coming to the forefront just as importantly as the clean organic meat uh, that comes
0: from from hunting, mate. What can we do, do you think, uh, over the next twenty years to ensure you know our hunting is around for future generations? I presume you've started to get your kids, um, you know, teaching them about you know firearms and safety and hunting and where their meat comes from. I mean, obviously, you want hunting around for them, but we've seen huge changes in just a short time when they grow up into you know young adults and their hunting, you know. Uh, Traditions moving forward when they get older. What can we do, do you think, over the next twenty years to ensure that the next generation picks up where I guess we left off?
2: I think it's all types of narrative. I think you know I'm purposeful in what I'm teaching my boys about where food comes from, what hunting means, the responsibility of hunting, that it's not this Yahoo sport, that it's it's something that we need to cherish. Um, it's the narrative that we tell our non-hunting friends around why we hunt. It's the narrative that we use when we invite someone who has an interest in hunting that's never hunted before, that we take them, introducing these new people to hunting. It's the narrative of how we speak to one another. That's what's going to change the the hunting. That's what's going to keep hunting around in 20 years' time, is being able to push into this digital space that's just gonna grow larger and larger and larger and larger. Stories around who we are at Hunters.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. May to finish off, where if people want to find out who this uh former South African slash now Mississippi person, uh where do they find out about you? So social medias, where do they find the names? Um, tell us about where people can find you if they want to start following you and checking out your videos and um, uh, social media content.
2: Well, I'll, I'll make one correction. I'm always a South African, not former South African. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, just Blood Origins, man. Blood Origins on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube, our website, bloodorigins.com. Uh, even if you, I don't know. You know, if you get Amazon uh, Amazon Prime here in New Zealand or wherever you're listening to this, sit in your bed and you can put Amazon Prime on your TV and you can get all your Blood Origins episodes of all the people that we featured uh, through Amazon Prime.
0: All right, Robbie, thanks for coming on the show. I really um, just want to say thank you, actually, for uh, you know the videos you're making, the content you're making. Um, I've had a really, really good discussion tonight. It's uh, opened up. My mind on a, on a lot of different things and a, and a different approach, and you know, moving forward, things we need to do. Um, it's just been great. I've just, honestly, Bobby, I got to say, you know, to don't get a big head here. This probably for me anyway, uh, probably been one of the better shows I've done for a while. Actually, I really enjoyed the content of the show. So um, I just want to thank you for coming on. So Robbie Kroger joins me here, guys, from Blood Origins here on AHP. So Robbie, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Hope Hopefully, we can catch up again soon.
2: Thank you, buddy. Much appreciated the opportunity.
0: You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.